This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the Tracking Board's Launchpad Writing Competitions. In just four years, the Launchpad has helped 216 writers get signed, 68 projects get set up, 35 writers get stuffed, and led to four bidding wars. To check out their current and upcoming competitions, visit tblaunchpad.com and see how the Launchpad can jumpstart your professional writing career. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about assisting comedy writers and showrunners with a good friend of ours, Gary Sunt. Hey, Gary. Hi. Gary has been the showrunner's assistant on Superstore, a writer's assistant on The Goldbergs, a writer on a digital Playboy series, and is currently assisting director Adam Wingard on Death Note for Netflix. That's true. All of those things happened. <laughs> well, okay. Like, just to clarify, I was only the showrunner's assistant on the pilot, and when you're doing a pilot for a show, you get to be the showrunner's assistant, writer's assistant, writer's PA. Like, you're kind of, you just sort of take care of the writer. Like, during staffing, you're reading all the scripts that you can get your hands on. You're just trying to figure out everything about everything everything it's all moving so fast and so like during the pilot i was the i was the showrunner's assistant and then in series i was the writer's assistant on the first season tell us a little bit about how you kind of got started in this industry okay that's it's sort of a longer question (laughs) i think we i'll see if i can like streamline it uh kind of started when i was 15 I was sort of like a wayward ragamuffin youth in suburbia, which is like being the baddest kid in an Archie comic. And that was kind of, <laughs> was kind of me growing up. Not the CW comic. Not the CW. No, actually, it's like the reality is a little bit closer to the CW version, <laughs> you know, like like uh, like Riverdale. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a real thing. It's a very scary place growing up. But uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona and in, in the outskirts. When I was about 15, I was like, oh, I should stop being an asshole. So I went ahead and found other ways to occupy my time. I just sort of like left a whole friend group behind and, you know, needed to pivot over. And when I was pivoting over, I uh, went and saw Kill Bill at the movies. And I was already a pretty huge movie and TV buff. Like growing up, I really liked Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I really liked The Simpsons. I was a huge Angel fan, you know. Hell yeah, Angel. Oh, yeah, that's the, right. The Deep Space Nine of Buffy Birds. <laughs> uh, it, it, really, it really is the Deep Space Nine, with all of the peaks and valleys of a Deep Space <laughs> <Yeah>. Nine. <laughs> like it's, and that was sort of my initial introduction, but it was uh, when I was sitting there watching Kill Bill, and my dad took me, because my mom would have no business uh, in a Quentin Tarantino movie, and my dad was <laughs> like, uh, hey, I'm leaving right after Uma Thurman got shot in the head. Like, she gets shot in the head, and he got up, and he was like, forget it, this is not going to work out. And then went and, I think he saw Hotel for Dogs or Marley and Me, something with a dog <laughs> in it. And, uh, and well, I mean, I, the, the ending of uh, Marley and Me is pretty dark. It is. <laughs> well, uh, I hope that he saw Marley and Me, because I'm like, joke's on you. <laughs> <laughs> like, we got our death up front. Like, you got, like, and everyone that dies after Uma Thurman gets shot in the head is kind of like... You, you sort of want to see them die, but in Marley and Me, like you just spend the entire movie not wanting this one thing to happen, and that's <laughs> exactly what you get. So, so he got up and he's like, "This is too much for me, an adult man." An I'm, adult, but <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to leave my child in here I'm to watch the rest of it while I watch Hotel <laughs> for Dogs. <laughs> that, that was basically it. He's just like, "You're on your own, son." <laughs> and he left. And uh, and when we were done, I was like, "How's your dog movie?" He was like, "It was really good. It was really good." How was your um, samurai movie? And I was like, "I think I would like to do uh, that." 
I don't know what that is, but I want to make those. Mm-hmm. So I, I started writing when I was about 15 years old pretty pretty seriously. And all I did was stay home from school and just write and write and write. And then when I was about 16, I had written two scripts, and I handed them to a local commercial director uh, that my dad was friends with. And he was like, oh, what what is your writing like? And so he was reading my scripts. And he called me and he was like, hey, we should write a movie together. And I was like, okay, cool. So I was like 16 and I was writing this movie and it's like, yeah, we're going to fund it independently and do that whole thing. Mm -hmm. So we funded it independently and it got made and shot and ended up on Netflix and iTunes for like a brief amount of time. You've come full circle back to Netflix. Absolutely. (laughs) Back to Netflix. Well, because in the beginning, Netflix just took whatever. Like Netflix was basically just like, do you have a movie that has a title? They were like, <laughs> we're, we will. Ne- like now they're like, oh, well, we're Netflix. You know, they don't want to. They don't want to. You know, remember the deep dark days when they were like. Although, they, if you actually use the the search engine on Netflix, I think you will still find those deep dark <laughs> content. Uh, I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. But I won't tell you the title of this movie because for some reason it has stayed off of my IMDb. For some reason it has stayed off Ooh. of everything, mm-hmm. and. And I've been content with that because I, I I didn't love the the movie that we ended up with. It was really hard. Like I was I was very young mm-hmm. and getting started, and I didn't love necessarily the movie that we made. But that would have been a great experience for you. Did you get to hang out? It on was sad and see it happen. In absolutely. Front of your eyes? Well, because I was a co uh, co producer and co writer. So, you know, it was, it was really, the whole thing was really an exercise in sort of an older guy. He's about 52. It was, it was really an exercise for like him to sort of direct and it was his vehicle direct. And I got to see and make a lot of decisions like very firsthand. Then when I was in college, I made a couple of more movies. A little of that had to do with after that first experience, it was really hard. So I was part of Kevin Smith's online message board. And (laughs) because I was part of that online message board, it was like, come see the special features from Clerks 2. And there's a very specific kind of person that wants to go to Los Angeles for the first time see, to watch yeah. the special features of to Clerks, Clerks 2. <laughs> Which, I mean, I mean, let's let's put it in perspective. Clerks 2 was at the Cannes Film Festival as well. So it was, yeah. It was, a, a, oh my God. I got it like, what, like a seven minute standing ovation at yeah, the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, this is, guys, it's a movie. It's like a fine movie, but yeah. it's... A, anything is possible, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Clerks 2 was a Cannes. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's a, I, I think it's a really good movie. I still see, uh, you know, I I'd stand by it anytime. I think it's a, I think it's an awesome movie. And, uh, and I met him afterward and I sort of talked about how like, Oh, I made this movie. I don't totally love how it turned out. He was just like, just make another one. Just keep making, just don't stop making. And then he forgot who I was. I'm sure immediately after that. No, I mean, he was really, really nice. And we ended up talking for like 20 minutes. I kind of waited at the end of the line. Cause I was like, I'm going to be the guy that makes you stay 20 minutes after to talk. <laughs> so I went back and I was in college and I made two more movies one that it was about a, uh, a fat guy and a skinny guy in high school. And I was so preoccupied uh, that summer. Wait, is that is that Clerks in High School, basically? It was It was Clerks in High School was the movie that I went on. Like, I met Kevin Smith, and I was like, I'm going to make Clerks in High School. So I went home, wrote the script, made it, shot it that summer, and on the last day of production, went to the movies. I hadn't been in the movies the whole production. And um, I was going because a friend of mine was a background with a line in in a movie called Superbad, which is about a fat guy and a skinny guy in high school. <laughs> um, and it, I'm, there were far too many similarities. And I basically got a grown-up education where it was like, okay, you can play, but you're going to be playing with sort of bigger dogs than you think. People are making what's on your mind, which is good for you, but that's also a challenge. 
and so after that, I made another movie that sort of got tied up in distribution stuff. Got sort of like tied up in distribution rights. But, uh, you know, and I didn't I didn't put it out the way that I needed to. And then I moved out to L.A. I graduated uh, college. I got a degree in economics. And when I came out to L.A., I got here and I was like, I just need a job. I need to get a job at a cool company. What do I do? So I started looking on every like entertainment careers and I started going on all of those entertainment career websites and I submitted my resume that I thought was like flawless and perfect and I sent it on out to everybody. And the next day in college, they had told me that I was supposed to go door to door and follow up oh my God. with resumes that I submitted just to make sure they didn't need anything else. So I went door to door in Los Angeles <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> and went up to their buzzers at their gates outside of their giant everything from like a small nook in like a good size apartment to like or like a like set of buildings to like you know a studio and just like like press the button and was like do you need anything else <laughs> they were like no we're good and <laughs> never heard from them again <laughs> like it just didn't work out so it took me about two weeks and i reached out to a friend of mine who was the older sister of somebody who was the assistant director on a movie that i did and she was at the time head of publicity for sony and i was like hey um can you uh can can you give me any advice about what i should do and she was like come here and work for me idiot uh she kept me in diapers in that first year and it was really educational being in publicity it never occurs to you what goes into really releasing a film and for a film fan i think seeing publicity and how publicity works is maybe the biggest gift and antidote to sort of idolizing everyone that you've ever seen in a movie because you see them in this permanent medium movies and television to be honest like you see people in this medium you don't realize that they're all just doing a job everyone's there to entertain you and they all look very pretty but they're also they're working that was something that working publicity really taught me and sort of illuminated in a lot of ways and i can't thank those two her and then my direct boss you know i can't thank them enough for that experience it's amazing how much the success of a movie can ride on whether it has a good publicity campaign or not or whether they put that money into it absolutely like you know getting anything out there the truth is is that publicists have the hardest job in the world because you have a bunch of like creatives that don't want to spend a minute away from creating the great show or the great movie that you're watching you have all these creatives that don't want to take a step out of that to talk to people about it and so the publicist has to get them to communicate then their bosses at the studio and at the producer level are like why doesn't anybody know about the show or why doesn't anybody like talking about x or y and then you go well it's creators are busy making the show and it's like great well then get the journalists to talk about it without them and so then being a publicist, you have to have a lot of great relationships with a lot of journalists, people that are having the conversations that people are listening to. There's a lot of getting the word out that people just don't realize, particularly when they're making independent stuff. When people set out on their own to make something independently, they're competing against every bit of noise in the universe mm -hmm. to fight to exist. And so getting up to the top is, it's, it's an incredible feat. We should, you know, respect the people that are able to do it. And then on the other side of that, you have the audience that is inundated with content and material and they've got a million things competing for their time that are supposed to already represent their values and then you have to convince them that this new thing represents everything they believe in get them on board with it which i mean that's the only person that you sort of get to tell what to do is your assistant and uh that was my first assistant job <laughs> can you talk us through how you transition from this very specific set of skills and this specific department in publicity to assisting on Superstore. Alrighty. Well, I had another friend 
and it was a family friend who's a very funny writer. Uh, his name's Rick Weiner, and he so even his name is funny. Even his name is hilarious. He and Kenny Schwartz—they're just these really smart, very funny dudes. That uh, and they're on American Housewife right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were brought on as the showrunners with Charlie Grandy on a show called Guys with Kids. And before that, I had I had done a little bit of PA work, and which I also got through a, another family friend on the single cam version of Super Fun Night. And that was crazy. Like it was, it was just, it was like a very different thing. Uh, Conan O'Brien was there and I didn't talk to him at all, but I moved his chair and that was cool. (laughs) It was like, Oh look, it's, it's, it's a king of jokes, all jokes. Um, and he remembers that he, uh, he, he does, you know, I'm sure like, uh, like I was talking to him the other week and he was just like, remember that time with that chair? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) uh, but we, (laughs) absolutely. So, but you know, like for me, that was like very educational because when he leaned back to sit in the chair, he didn't look back to see if there was a chair. Like he, like I moved the chair and out of the way and he fell. Is that what? (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm like, like he walked forward and then I moved the chair up behind him. And then he went backwards as though the chair would be there. Had I not moved it, it wouldn't have been there. But he didn't look backwards. He knew that the chair was coming. You <laughs> so, know, so you're saying he, he knew that he had an assistant specifically there. There, to, there was uh, someone there to move the chair. Wow. Like that was that. I, and and there's, there's good reason for that. He's a very hardworking, very talented person. I mean, that's, that's true. It's a great metaphor for being an assistant in this industry. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, oddly enough, I'd say even for being a writer in general, like there's, there is a, um, we'll get into it, but you know, there is a degree I think of writing where you have to know who's, who's working at the top. What is it that they want to, that, that they're kind of looking to say as well. And the reason that people sort of search for individuals that sort of share their values and work with them on a show, what I think you interview for a lot is somebody that, somebody that's going to help complement and expand on the vision that you're out to create and can capitalize on the strengths that you don't already have. I think that's what showrunners are looking for. I think that's what directors look for a lot of the time. That's a specific thing. You have to be the chair to Conan's butt. In the yes. Room. Yeah. 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 It's just like, remember that. And here's the thing is that you, you can pivot, you can have different sort of skills, you know, and like, and you, can, as people, you can be a stool. <laughs> you can be the stool. Yeah. You can be that. You could be the marker that he writes with. Like you can be like a lot of things, but you know, being an assistant, you got to remember that like, that's really what you're there to do. And I think that that's something that being a writer's assistant, which we'll, which we'll get to, which we should get to. So let's get over there. I, uh, so I was the night PA on a show called guys with kids. Rick Weiner, Kenny Schwartz, Charlie Grandy. And it was uh, executive produced by Jimmy Fallon and Amy Ozels. And I was the night PA. And the night PA basically exclusively took care of the writers, which was wonderful. So it was my job to take care of all the writers' needs and to run scripts. Running scripts takes, in this day and age, so little of your attention. Like, I was able to watch all of 30 Rock as a <laughs> like as a, like in that job i watched six seasons of 30 rock while i was just like collating pages for this multi-camera comedy show and you know like agonizing over every single script like oh my god what are they doing here what are they doing there and just like really really trying to learn like everything that i could about writing that's why i was watching 30 rock and then of like what i do is i'd watch a new show that i hadn't gone all the way through and then i would watch another show that i had already seen so i'd like watch 30 rock and then i'd go back to the Chappelle show and i'd I'd be like okay so where do these things sort of co coexist you know and the truth is that they're pretty different because one's a sketch and one's a scripted kind of narrative so that's a different thing but at the end of that show I had a really good relationship with all the writers and our production team was brought on to a pilot called Holding Patterns. 
and that pilot was uh, written and created by uh, Justin Spitzer. And then when we got brought over, I was the first PA on the scene. And the first thing they asked for was like a poster for the production office, like make up a poster to make it feel big in here, you know, like fun. And so I did. And I made a poster like, you know, used like airline font because like the pilot had a plane crash spoilers. You can look it up on deadline. It's not really that much of a spoiler. And so um, I made this poster and the and then Justin walked in and he was immediately taken by that poster. He was like, "This is great. Can we just do use this for the show?" And I was just like, "You could do whatever you want." Like, actually, no, no, no. What I said was very sort of like so foolishly in hindsight was, "Yeah, you'd have to replace all of the images that I used to build that poster, but it's definitely a possibility." Like, <laughs> as though like I had any concept uh, or control over what a poster for anything could possibly look like. <laughs> Did they use that poster? Uh, no, because the pilot didn't go. Oh. But on but in the process of doing that pilot, I did storyboards, I designed props uh, for both the interior and the exterior of the plane crash. I was doing storyboards for the plane crash, which was really confusing because I was the PA. And then I'd like sit in with Justin, and you know, and and that allowed us to sort of work together and bond a little bit in the process. And then at at the end of that show, it didn't go, and I was like, damn. And then I didn't have the in at Sony anymore because they had moved on to Netflix. And I was also like, I, I don't know that I want to jump back into being in publicity. It seems like being a publicist is a very specific job. And it is. It's a very, very specific job. And it requires a skill set that is in of itself so, so important and so valuable that they that the people that do it, they have to love it. They have to love doing it. And that was the thing that I learned at that Sony job was that you have to love what you do every single day. The best job you have in the world is the job you have right now. The only job that's better than your job is the job of the people that are right above you. And you owe sort of like a little bit of respect and a little bit of deference to them because they have figured out how to do the thing that you want to do. So from there, when that pilot didn't go, I was kind of like, I was kind of hanging out and I was like, oh God, what what am I going to do? And I was working as like a camera assistant in reality because when you do a lot of indie film, you sort of become a jack of all trades. So I was literally a jack of all trades, uh, except my name's Gary. (laughs) <laughs> and and then Justin hit me up in my really shitty East LA apartment. It's not like I don't still live in a shitty apartment, but I lived in a shittier apartment. I lived in an actual slum uh, full of cockroaches with a secret room where the previous tenant trained dog, like fighting dogs. Like it was really dark. Oh my God. So he hit me up and he was just like, would you like to be an assistant on my deal? And I was like, yes. He's like, it might be really boring. You know, we're not going to be on set. And I was like, fine. Like, you know, it was, it was like, it was like, it was one of the best phone calls I had ever received in my life. Can and you explain what that means to the listeners for a writer to have a deal? And to, you know, Absolutely. Yeah. So writers get overall deals when they have proven themselves as particularly reliable as a writer to a studio and reliable really means fast and good. You have to be very quick. You have to be able to turn stuff around very quickly. You cannot like the pilot that you're sitting there agonizing over forget it like finish your pilot move on to the next pilot finish your pilot move on to the next pilot get stuff done because the truth is is that people that are writing at that level i remember when i started working as an assistant i was like i'd agonized for months over one pilot and the truth is is that that one pilot i don't care how good it is that's not going to be what's going to go by the time you have something that's going to go you're going to be so far down that road that you didn't even know, like you'll, you'll be trying to get other things going in place of the things that you already have going because you are working so much. That's, that's how fast you have to be. And so writers on a term deal, usually within a TV show, because the writer's rooms are so big, 
if the agents are able to talk to the studio execs in the right way, they basically parlay a situation in which I have a very reliable guy or gal. Gals are probably more reliable than guys, let's be honest. But like, <laughs> but you know, uh, I've got a very reliable human person that is good at this specific thing that you need. And they have proven themselves on multiple seasons of uh, whatever show that you're on. And, uh, and you know, for Justin, it was the office and scrubs. If you want to, if you want to talk about like, why do we care about shows coming back? Because it's the only way for writers careers to grow. A show like the office built a ton of careers. In fact, half the people in comedy, you could say came from like a Greg Daniels camp. And then you have this other camp of people that came from the uh, SNL camp. Like comedy is divided by all of these factions, people that sort of became institutions in and of themselves. It's, and that's sort of how you grow. The, uh, the writers that have proven themselves end up on those deals. And usually they're assigned to a show while they develop. But for Justin, that first year, we developed two pilots. You know, like, and by we, I mean he developed the he developed the show, and I assisted him in doing that. And that that job basically consisted of me going to an office every single day. And some days, like he wouldn't be in. Some days he'd work from home. He didn't have to come into the office. No one was checking. And like, you know, we'd go back and forth, and I'd do a lot of research and hand him all of my findings on like you want to build a show about it. Uh, a house that's falling apart. Money Pit was the pilot when, in that term deal that went. And it went into development. And so for that, I had to read about how to build a house. Fortunately, my, my family's background is construction. So I was able to say, like, this is how you build a house. You know, this is how you do. This is, this is what I know about this. And then I knew what people were talking about inside books about building houses. And at the same time that you're doing that, as an assistant, if you're anything like me, you're trying to simultaneously, which I don't recommend this. Well, I'm going to talk a lot about things I don't recommend people do. <laughs> like, like, and, and, you know, like, so we'll, listen to this episode and do the opposite. Right? You know, that may not be a bad idea. You know, I, like, we'll, we'll, we'll clarify. We'll say this might be good and this might be less great. Uh, um, you, uh, you sit there and you use all of the knowledge that you have, but you're also trying to impress your boss. When you're 20 something years old, I myself can look back at times that I was trying to impress people and I can literally see the single worst behaviors uh, I've ever, I've <laughs> ever done in my life. Things that I've tried to do to be chill and cool have made me into a weird garbage monster that like, <laughs> isn't like amazing or fun to be around. And I just have to be aware of that. You know, I think that I was talking with uh, my therapist because I definitely have a therapist because I've got problems. I was talking with my therapist this morning and I was talking about, to her about doing this podcast. And she was like, oh, yeah. So, like, what's doing this podcast like? And I was like, well, I'm a little nervous because, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff here that I'm going to be talking about. And And she was like, it's sort of like a job interview. It's like, and what's the thing that you're least good at? And I was like, that's interesting. So I feel like the answer to that question is, is that you can spend so much time trying to be the perfect X or Y that you're not even really good. And where do you see yourself in uh, in five years, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about your relationship with your father, but we don't have to get into that. I'm happy to talk about both of those things <laughs> in a very public forum. So, uh, so yeah, like being on that term deal, Money Pit went, but it ultimately didn't get shot. And then the studio was like, okay, well, last year we had you develop two pilots. You didn't have to go anywhere. Maybe we should put you on a show and get some money out of you, Justin Spitzer. You know, not really getting money out of me. Like, being an assistant on a term deal is a real privilege because you learn so much. I don't know about you guys, but I walk around way too often 
pretending that everything that I've been doing is not the first time I'm doing it. So like I walk yeah, around pretend like, <laughs> pretend like you belong. Right? That's oh yeah, problem. absolutely. Just like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm i uh, I'm cool here. None of this is super crazy and weird. <laughs> like, uh, this is normal. Everything is normal. And, it, and you know, like the truth is, is that you're actively doing things that you always dreamed of doing. You're just not as rich or, the there's this idea of like you're gonna be this like millionaire human which is is fine and people should work to have you know a lot of resources but the truth is is that most of the time like what it takes to be a quote millionaire human it's 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 a lot more than you think because when you come out here most people are starting from scratch so so we went into Mulaney and Justin was a writer on Mulaney and I was a uh, I was I basically sat at a desk at in the Mulaney offices and hung out a lot while we were there like we'd get to know the writers we'd help them like troubleshoot some stuff if or tell them about things that we knew about a lot of the times you're just trying to get to know the writers just trying to get to know these people and the flip on that was that at the same time that we were on the show we were developing this pilot and Justin's next pilot idea was for a show called American Superstore that was the original title of the show that is now called Superstore and stars America Ferreira and uh, is they still on. got the America in there. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Different way. <laughs> You're right. Well, you know, if they say, if they call it American Superstore, then it's just like, oh yeah, we get it. No, no, no. no. But it was a uh, but but American it's... crime, <laughs> American crime story, and now American Superstore. <laughs> Ryan Murphy does Superstore. Yeah. Oh my God, that would be. Uh, That'd be terrible. Anybody, anybody but those guys doing Superstore, this, it, it would be, it would, uh, it would not be the same show that it is. And I think it's very funny. But we, uh, but yeah, so Superstore, uh, Superstore got picked up, and it was actually really funny because he, he sort of had the idea to come up with this, this show about working in a Walmart. And so he called me in this office and he was like, what do you think of this show? And I was like, I love that show. I'd watch that show. Like, that sounds like an amazing show. And I think it could be really good for people. He didn't know that I had worked at a Walmart for eight months when he asked me that question. But he asked, he was like, do you want to go undercover? And I was like, <laughs> I already went undercover. I can tell you anything you want to know. So, like, we coordinated with a lot of people that worked at Walmart and in the Targets and all of that. And people were really sort of kind to us and opening doors to help us figure stuff out. I was able to call a lot of people that I had sort of known in the past to sort of talk about, like, what it was going to be. And then the show went. And we went into production, and we shot in a Kmart, and it was amazing. It's an amazing experience to see working with somebody like Justin, who's sort of been around and all of this. And it, the pilot was directed by Ruben Fleischer, who is also like an incredible director. You've got Ruben Fleischer, and you have Justin Spitzer. You have these two people that Justin knows TV comedy down to a science. He's very, very talented, very smart. And then you got Ruben, who knows action comedy scripted just like how to make things look and feel right and how to give them a cohesive feeling and i think that that's what people responded to in the superstore pilot is is that it really is like a pilot that is out to say something pretty helpful in a world where a lot of people are doing those jobs setting up lessons in that space you know that's not an easy thing to do but uh but i think the show does it really successfully when the pilot wraps production you go into post and that is when Every agent in town becomes your best friend as the showrunner's assistant. Because what happens from there is, is that they send you all of the scripts. They send you every writer in town. All of the scripts come in your way. And you start to, it becomes your task between you, your boss, and the producers and their assistant to read all of the scripts and find the people that are going to be on your team. 
And a lot of that as the assistant is figuring out what does my boss need to make their vision come true? And that requires a ton of troubleshooting. And one of the best pieces of advice that I was given midway through was don't tell me what you think I'll like. Tell me what you like. That was really important for him to say because I was frequently trying to read tea leaves when he didn't need me to read tea leaves. He needed my opinion. I wasn't involved at that level because I was just like a person that needed to prove themselves. In fact, some of the biggest mistakes that I ever made working in that job and really in any job is thinking that I needed to prove myself at any given time. That is the rookie mistake is because you're trying to, that's, that's what makes the rookie character somebody that's like always trying to prove themselves and is always so wrong. And you're wrong in a way that you cannot anticipate. And do you feel like you kind of had to earn his trust in your creative instincts and that sort of thing? Or do you think from almost the day he took you on, he inherently kind of believed that you were the right person to be working with him anyway? I think that one thing about writers is they're constantly evaluating if, if any other writers are like me. You're constantly evaluating the strengths of the people that are around you. You know, you're constantly trying to figure out like, okay, what does this person know about? What is this person going to be great at? Like, what's, how can I utilize this human whose bills I'm paying? And that's not something that I think that employees think a lot about, but that's what you are doing. When somebody has you on a deal like that, that, like that is a privilege. Everybody in town would love that job. You should be so lucky and nobody owes you anything. And I think, like, uh, it was funny. I just saw Colossal with my girlfriend. And uh, afterward, it was she and her friend, and they were both talking about uh, Taylor Brogan, who you guys had on your panel. Wonder Con, yeah. Uh, WonderCon, yeah. yeah. I was going to say Comic-Con, WonderCon. Yeah. And, then, uh, and then my girlfriend, CJ, and they're very good friends, and CJ's a great writer as well. And, like, the conversations get really douchey. Um, but, we, uh, but we were talking about Colossal afterward, and they were talking about that thing that men do where they think that, they can be really nice to you, and that means that they owe you something, that abusive man sort of shit. And I was like, wait a minute, do all men do this? And they were just like, all men do this. And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't do this. And then, like, you know, I can look in my past and see where it's happened. Like, where you're a man and you think that you're entitled to something because you've done a certain amount of work, your work is the same way when you are working for people who other people would kill you to work for. And like working for Justin opened up conversations with people that I would have never gotten to talk to otherwise. People wouldn't give my resume a second look had I not had the opportunity to sort of work with these guys and to have like some pretty people that I had heard of before I moved out here vouching for me, which which is pretty exciting. And then we got into season one of Superstore and I asked pretty specifically to be a writer's assistant. I really wanted that room time. I wanted that room experience and I wanted to really try and separate myself from being at the desk answering the phone i wanted to really prove myself as a writer that was kind of my big priority well so you ended up in the room on superstore and then later on the goldbergs how yeah. how does a comedy room work and okay. and what is kind of your job as a writer's assistant can you talk us through those comedy rooms get a little different depending on who's running them sometimes you've got rooms that write the episodes all together so they just send out scenes to individual writers and like at the end of the day whose name was actually on the script was not written by that person there are other people who have the writer whose name is on the script write the first draft then it is them who sort of gets to like craft a little bit of it some people make the episodes very personal to the individual other people make the episodes as broadly designed as possible and i've been in you know four rooms and i've seen all kinds of ways of doing it 
sometimes people pivot depending on the needs of the season. So like if people are getting behind trying it one way, then it falls upon the showrunner to come up with a different tactic to get what they need done done. The way that I've seen rooms work though, generally you don't actually have the showrunner for most of the day. For most of the day, the showrunner is off doing showrunner stuff because being a showrunner is not, it's being a writer, but it's also sort of being a director. It's also sort of being a producer. It's also sort of being the like, you're the architect of this project. You it's know? like a, being a CEO of like a multi-million dollar company. It really is. And your board of directors is the studio. And that studio can fire you. That studio has a lot of opinions about how your company's running. That studio has a lot of valuable opinions and it behooves you to listen to them because they're the ones that are keeping your show on. And the moments to react based on what I've seen, the moments to react sort of counter to that is when you don't think that the turns that they want to make represent sort of similar values as, as yours. If they want to take a character in a certain direction, there's a lot that goes into making that decision, and it's so much more complicated. I've seen stories broken and rebroken, and I thought that a story sounded fine. The Goldbergs, uh, half the Goldbergs room is ex-community writers. So they all have that Dan Harmon story circle sort of running through their head, and they speak that language in kind of a very intimate way. The other half doesn't speak that language at all. They see stories in a completely different way that is also effective. And it's kind of the it's the combination of these resources that showrunners basically looking to pit enough people against each other. You need the closers. You need people that will close a conversation down when it needs to be shut down. You need people that are going to ask hard questions to save you from something dark. You need people that are just going to be joke machines. It doesn't matter what's happening in their lives, they're going to keep pitching jokes, and they will only pitch jokes. And that is a skill set that few people possess, and it is amazing to watch when it happens. I've seen people that have incredible hit percentages, where I was like, geez, like you got jokes down in a way that it's like, it's supernatural. Like anything that we don't understand, it looks like magic. I've I've always said that like a DVD player is magic, because <laughs> like because because okay. So I have the basic principle: I put in the disc, and then a laser hits the disc. How an image goes from the box to the screen because a laser hit the disc, I literally can't explain. I have no idea how it happens. That's magic. And that's what watching these guys do a joke like. Like when there there are certain comedy writers that I've seen that can hit a joke. We're talking 98, 99% hits, you know? And there are certain writers that like you think you're good and then you see them and you're like, I don't know what I'm talking about or what I'm doing. I'm like, oh my God. And that's good for you to experience because these people are so sharp and because they understand that fundamental truth that I think a lot of people need to understand, which is being a writer being a writer isn't what you thought it was when you opened up your first book or when you got in obsessed with the golden girls or when you were watching snl it's not what it was when you i've seen jaws more times than i can count i've watched that movie i i literally and it's not a tiny number it's not like oh i've seen it 10 times no i've probably seen it 450 times mm -hmm. I've spent many hours of my life watching Jaws, and everything that the movie Jaws is, what I thought making movies was, is completely different. And that's not a bad thing, but it's something that you learn by being there and doing it. Yeah, and the vast majority of being a writer once you're on a show is not actually writing, is it? No. No. In fact, most of the time when, when writers are on a show, they like you spend a lot of time just sort of sitting in the room. Your biggest thing about being in a writer's room is like hanging. 
you've just kind of got to hang in. You know, this is a posse of people that have to get together for a purpose every day. And by the way, every one of those writers feels the same way about their positions that we feel about our glorified assistant positions. They are holding on to those jobs. They have things that they have to do. And no one's going to tell you up front what those job descriptions are. Because for every show, it's going to be different. And I think that being a writer, and one of the things that being an assistant teaches you, and it teaches you this for better or for worse, you start to learn how to listen. And that becomes the thing that I think as a writer is most valuable, is really listening. Because what one person thinks is funny is not what another person will think is funny. I um, I lost my father many years ago. And one of the side effects of losing a parent is, is that you make a lot of jokes about having dead parents. Like, <laughs> like, like all of a sudden you're like, the only way that I can possibly be fine with this, when you go through something really traumatic, I think the instinct to be a comedian comes from, this was so hard. And the only way, either consciously or subconsciously, I'm going to get through it is if I start making jokes about it. And when you start to close that door a little bit to yourself to try and impress people, that can act very counterintuitively to building the relationships that you want to build. Making mistakes, actually, in a job, it's funny. We see agents, right? And there's like a reputation for agents as being like the Slytherins of the entertainment industry. <laughs> like they, like the agents and managers can sort of feel that way. But the truth is, is that in that world, if you make a mistake, it can cost you everything. And I think that that's the one thing that all of the people that get to the head of any industry have in common is is that they survived their mistakes and they listened when people called them out and they copped to them themselves you know there were mistakes that i made as an assistant that i couldn't admit that i had done i couldn't admit to like setting the wrong meeting i couldn't do it and that didn't help my relationship at all because the thing is is that it doesn't matter how covert you think the conversations that are happening are everyone around is pretty smart you know, everyone figures out that like, oh, how did this get f***ed up? And if you try to pass the buck to anybody else, I don't think it does anyone any favors. It's like, if you f***ed up, you'd better get out in front of it and you better just say that you f***ed up. And that's not something that I knew going into it. And so I spent a bunch of time, like if I had ever f***ed anything up, I spent all the time again trying to be perfect. And I don't think that it really worked out for me in that environment. Yeah, I agree. I think it definitely speaks to someone's character a lot more to be able to own up to a mistake and learn from it than Absolutely. to try and deflect blame or, you know, cover it up or something like that. Oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, the spoiler uh, on this whole thing is is that after I worked at Superstore and after I worked at the Goldbergs, I wasn't asked back. And that conversation, that conversation was really challenging because I had worked with the creator of Superstore for so many years. I'd worked with Justin for so many years. And for whatever the reason was, I wasn't asked back to the show. That was really, really challenging. But what it forced me to do is it forced me to really look at like, okay, you worked hard every day. I woke up every day thinking I was doing the very best at the job. Not the best that I could, but I thought I was doing the best at the job. I thought that I was being the best that that I could be. And I thought that I was sort of proving myself in the process of being a writer that you'd want to have around. And I don't know entirely that I had done that. I don't know that entirely that that was because the reasons that I was given, there weren't, there weren't many, you know, there weren't a lot of reasons given for like, why I wasn't specifically asked back to the show, but there were enough clues along the way to sort of like 
give me the time because when you're an unemployed person, all you have is time. And, you know, one of the nice things was is that after not being asked back to Superstore, I got my first writing job. And I got my first real paid writing job, and that was writing jokes for a digital series for Playboy called The Antiviral Show. And it was uh, executive produced by some really funny people, Logan Burdick and Alec Owen, who work in a lot of stuff in the digital space. And they were, you know, they were fantastic. And all of a sudden, I was able to get an immediate difference and a different lens on what being an assistant is versus being a writer and what the real difference is in the skill sets where like when you're sitting there as a writer's assistant, you think so much of what you, I thought, not even you think, I thought that so much of what I had to do was prove that I was supposed to be there. And the truth is, is that what I had the opportunity to do was sit there and learn and listen and really get to know these people. Cause the more that you idolize folks and you put them up on a pedestal, the further away from them you are. I don't know people until I've seen them make a mistake. And that's not something that I knew before I was a writer's assistant. You know, I thought that I was best friends with everybody. And when you're best friends with everybody, you're not best friends with anybody. I think that's a distinction that as I've gone on and worked on stuff in the future, I've definitely taken it in. Like in being there as a writer, your responsibility shifts from as a writer's assistant, what your job is very specifically is to write down everything that the adults say. That's your job. Your job is to write it all down. The other part of your job is to make them comfortable. They need you there to sort of promote that comedy. They need you there to kind of like keep the ships on time in a comedy environment because they're so busy coming up with ways in which these characters are going to move and function in addition to developing their own stuff independently. Because by the way, once you've been staffed, all you're trying to do is have your own show. So it's like, you're like, oh man, being staffed, that cracks the nut. Being staffed doesn't crack the nut. After that, you're going to want your own show. And you're going to go, okay, because undoubtedly you'll work for somebody that doesn't want to do things exactly how you want to do them. And you always justify it by going, it's okay, I'll be able to do it my way someday. But the only way to even get there is to understand and acquiesce a bit to their way, where you can. If you can't, and you can't bend... And there's the possibility that you won't bend, and there's the possibility that you can't bend in those specific ways, but those are essentially the same thing. You know, anything is very possible. When you encounter bosses that think of things one way or think of things a different way, you'll always want more because, uh, what was it, the Nietzsche thing, like man's quest for power, like that's a real, that's a real influence. So just going to, back to brass tax for a second, you walk into this comedy writer's room on Superstore your very first day. You've never mm -hmm. been an actual writer's assistant in the room before. What was the kind of stuff that you had to sit there and learn are your duties? And how does that compare to someone who's, say, the writer's PA or the showrunner's assistant? When you're a writer's assistant, the difference between kind of everybody else really gets chalked down to your job is to write down what happens in the room. Everyone's going to talk. Your job is to write it down and your job is to organize it. Your job is to like keep it all sort of straight because the conversation moves in a lot of different ways and you are creating the record that will help shape the conversation, which means you have to spend a lot of time listening to where the conversation is headed. And there was on the Goldbergs, actually, the challenge of a writer's assistant on that show was like Adam's tumble. And like, that's like, that's the one thing that like is, is the writer's assistants are like, all right, it's time for Adam's tumble. And what happens is Adam, you know, will sit down and he'll have an idea and it all just comes out. And like the writers are going to 
come in and morph and tweak. But because that show is so intimately based on his experience, he ultimately becomes the gatekeeper of what ends up on that show. It's a very personal narrative. You know, his name's Adam F. Goldberg. It's called The Goldbergs. It's about his family in the 1980s. He understandably is protecting that legacy with every single word that's on a page. That's a huge responsibility for the writers to handle as well. Because regardless of what happens in real life, 20 years from now, we're going to remember what happened on the Goldbergs. And that's what we're going to think of as his life. That's true of any Seinfeld. That's true of Roseanne. That's true of all of them. When we remember them, we're going to remember their shows. And so when he does his tumble, you don't miss. You get one shot. And you get one shot to write it all down. And you don't go backwards. And you don't miss it. Because if you miss it, it may not come out the same way again. That's a very important responsibility. But at the same time, that's your job every day. More than that, like, like I remember being very nervous when people would tell me about the Adam Tumble, but then I was like, but isn't that your job for the room? Your job is just to do that all the time. And on some shows, you have a, your monitors up on the big screen, and on some shows, you have it in your laptop. And if it's up on the big screen, you don't get to have typos. You don't get to have mistakes. It's on the big screen. And they will stop you, and they will correct you. I, I, I saw a writer in a pilot punch one time stop everything, point to the person that was typing, and say, I said it like this. And you stop the whole room, you stop all the energy, while that change gets made. Not all writers are like that. Some writers are. And that specificity comes with being experts at what they do. They know more about crafting this thing, and they don't want to tolerate any sort of like middle ground on it. This is, re- this is professional work. And you have to walk in being cognizant that this is the show. When you're the writer's PA, you grab food, you grab pencils, you grab anything you are a grabber you are an obtainer you are a mover you are a shaker i cleaned up a christmas party one time for one of the shows that i was on and we went crazy like food fight in the office <laughs> like absolute insanity on this show and that night i stayed until six in the morning cleaning up everything i made it all disappear and at 11 a.m the, there, were, there were no dead bodies. In there the were office. no dead bodies in the office. I cleaned up an entire. It was it was very tame. It was a very tame party. But you know there was a food fight. Uh, but at the end of the night, like or sorry, the next morning uh, at eleven a.m., knock on my head. It's one of the showrunners who's like, "Gary, did you sleep here last night?" I was like, "I did." He's like, "Fucking idiot!" Like <laughs> I was just like, and he went right back to work. And it was just expected of you. It wasn't like, oh my God, this is incredible. Thank you so much. It's just like, that's your job. That's your job. Like you're, and again, that's the best job you've ever had. Like when I was a PA, the one thing that I think helped move me up from being a PA was being aware that like, I signed up for this. You can literally do any other job you want. If you want to be working in this industry and you want to be working at that level in this industry, just know that people become writers all the time doing a lot of stuff. You know, there are people that work in funeral homes. There are people that are like, there are people that are hustling, like selling AT&T packages. And that's true of every job in this industry. Everybody's doing everything because what you're trying to do is you're trying to make a name for yourself as an entertainer. And you don't need to be in the industry to do that. So if you're going to be in the industry and you're going to be doing that, then your job every day isn't to be moving yourself forward. Your job is to make the oil run right through the machine that is a television show. And then when you're a showrunner's assistant, you basically do that, but for the showrunner. So you're basically taking care of every random odd and end. And that will sometimes mean 
research. Sometimes that means pitching. Sometimes that means reading. Sometimes that means knowing about a thing. Sometimes that means scheduling and handling calls and shoving off calls that you don't physically have any time for because you are doing a million things at once. Like you are, you are managing this person's life for them. If their life is going a little crazy. It's probably because of their assistant because that's your job. Your job is to be an iPhone. <laughs> you know like not, not an android uh uh no you need to you need to work you know there's a there's like, wait it's the opposite like, hey gary ding yes sir yeah I, I mean it really is like that and it's like i need to know about this here's everything i know about blank i, mean, I can't think of yeah. like, the good, like the good place here's what i know about teletubbies like you know it's a very it's sort of like a very specific you're expected to sort of be an iPhone. At least that's what I thought. I don't think that way now. When I was a writer assistant, I treated it like I needed to be the most complete resource available. I remember I had another writer's assistant who I think is a fantastic person. When I worked on that show, I was so nervous because it was my first job as a writer's assistant. And I was like, oh my God, this person is so funny. She has so much experience. Oh my God, she's so smart. There's no way that I can even compete with that. Like, I just have to do something else. It's not even reasonable because, like, like white guys aren't even in vogue right now. So it's, like, not even, like, fair. Like, it was so... I got so nervous around this person. And so whenever she was around, I dotted my I's and crossed all of my T's, and I was very, very on point to the point where one day I was, like, organizing something in the folders, and my folder systems at home and when I worked as a writer assistant were immaculate and she was just like, this is crazy how neat all this is. And I was like, yeah. And I was like moving and I was like, Oh, I messed up. And I was like changing the font on a document to match all the other documents. She was like, your home is a mess, isn't it? And I was like, it <laughs> is because it was, you know, because I put everything into that job and I was so nervous and you do, you get nervous working with people. But at the end of the day, your job is to be pretty organized, but also to be a human being. Because making people comfortable enough to have you around means that you're a human person and it means that they can talk to you about stuff and that means that they like being around you, which that is a no small feat. I don't know about you guys, but I have a very long list of people I don't want to hang out with. So there are often two writer's assistants in rooms like this. Why is that? Uh, why that is because you, you usually get two writer's assistants and a script coordinator and, the re- like, and you can have more writer's assistants, but the truth is is that the bigger your room, the more writer assistance you need because those rooms break off. So you need people to write notes in multiple rooms. A staff writer is not going to take notes. It's just not a thing that's going to happen. The uh, script coordinator can take notes, but when you're in the thick of the season, the script coordinator has so much to do keeping track of everything that's happening. And so really it falls on the two to three writer's assistants, sometimes four, to keep all of the trains on time and to have all the materials. Because you have to remember that at the end of the night, my first day on Superstore, I took 32 pages of notes. I didn't stop. I wrote down every word. And I spent that evening formatting all of it. And going back and formatting 30 pages took me five hours. And the guys in charge of the show took one look at it, and they were like, this is crazy. You don't need to do this. You should have about five pages tops. And the real reason is, is that you catch what you catch. You, you catch what you're supposed to catch. You'll know what's landing in the room, what made people laugh. I wasn't listening. I was transcribing. And there is a difference. And I think that that is one of the biggest obstacles that if you want to be a writer's assistant, and you want to be an assistant really in any way, don't let yourself be a transcriber. 
I made that joke about being an iPhone. Don't be an iPhone. You're not Siri. You're a person. That's what makes you wonderful to be around. That's what's going to make you a good writer. Like, at the end of the day, that's all there is to it. So if you let yourself just become a robot, man, you are making some serious mistakes. Like, I get nervous about talking about this experience, being a writer assistant a little bit, but if you don't talk about it and you're not just open about it and you can't just be yourself in any given moment, then what's the value of what you're doing? It doesn't make any damn sense. To be fair, that is a piece of insight, whether you agree with it or not, that I wouldn't have had had I been asked back. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to learn that lesson. And I think that a lot of people could use that lesson. How do you feel being in those rooms has influenced your own writing? Uh, because you talked about the specific process of breaking an episode and putting it up on screen and all these different intricacies and level of craft that you've witnessed. So how do you take that into your own creative output? I'll, I'll offer an example. Whenever you see a kid squirming in a seatbelt, like, you know, they're like wrestling with the seatbelt. They're like, I don't want to sit in this chair. I completely understand what the hell they're talking about. Because that's the least natural thing that anyone has ever asked them to do. They were comfortable in a womb, and then they came out of a womb, and everything was really cold and overwhelming, and all of a sudden people were talking at them, and they think they're expected to smile all the time because that's the only thing that they know how to do to get more food because they think that smiling means I get more sustenance, which means that I get to live longer. And so every step of the way, we are taking in new information and we are folding it into the old information and learning how to be human beings. So when you walk into a writer's room and you're seeing them break stories and all you've ever wanted to be is a storyteller, you immediately start to internalize all the ways that they break stories. You start to see the value of note cards. What can go into a note card, like for a story beat? I remember when I first started writing note cards, they'd have like tons of details on them. Eventually you start to learn that stories have their own component parts. And those component parts sort of function in a very specific way. And it's a way that's pretty well traversed in a lot of different mediums. But everyone's, ba Joseph Campbell and Michael Arndt and Blake Snyder, for those uninitiated, those are all like script master people. The late Blake Snyder, who wrote Save the Cat, is pretty influential. Dan Harmon has his story circle. Joseph Campbell has the hero's journey. Michael Arndt has great endings, is sort of his big talk uh, that he does at like Sundance and stuff. All of these examples are all really saying the same thing. They're just different ways of unpacking it. What's funny about the Goldberg's room, in my opinion, is, is that half the room sees things in a different story beat structure way that's more representative of like traditional multi-camera historic, the way that they sort of break things out in terms of story. Whereas Dan Harmon's story circle is entirely based on one story and one circle that can go out and out and out into infinitum. And the difference between those two things is, is that they're using different words to describe the exact same thing and the exact same journey. I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan. And the thing about him is, is that he always writes stuff that has like a very clear point. Say what you will about Coraline, say what you will about American Gods, say what you will about Mirror Mask or any of those things, but what he's out to do has a point. And he has this great talk where he says, what was the first story ever told? And he argued that the first story was, don't go over there, there's a big cat, and it's going to eat you, and you will die. It's some iteration of that. That was the first thing that somebody said to somebody else. And the reason they did that was because they wanted to protect them. 
And now we've evolved this incredible media machine and the conversations that we have in the media and what we're doing and what we're offering. You know, America's number one export, I have a degree in economics. America's number one export, if you look at hard numbers, is banking and financial services. But I would argue that America's actual number one export is culture. We export our values to everyone around the world all the time. And that has a huge influence on all of them. There's a reason why China has a cap on how many movies from the United States can come over every year. They cap it at 20 because we actually believe in things different than they do. The, in, sa- the same goes uh, for France. There's a cultural cap of stuff that needs to be produced internally. Versus really? Internally, yeah. It makes so much sense. Why? Because America is a content machine. We don't quit. We are sending out our values as hard and fast as we can all the time. So it becomes a storyteller's responsibility then to know what they're doing. And what you're doing is, is you're communicating values. Teaching people how to survive in a day and an age where murder is weird means that we are offering each other ways to survive in a number of different environments and lots and lots of competing forces in terms of like, how do you deal with money? How do you deal with your family? How do you deal with your friends? How do you deal with your lover? How do you deal with your enemies? How do you deal with your fears? How do you deal with your wants? These are all very important and integral lessons that people that are building shows have to keep in mind every single day. It was funny one day we were talking about blackish and we were talking about how they did sort of that, that talk about police brutality really addressed it on that show. And the people on the show that I was on, I tried to make a a sort of joke about how, like how hard can you hit police brutality? And that's a real question to ask. How hard do you get to hit that? How much of a joke do you get to make that into? Because that's a responsibility. You know, it really is. And these are the things that these writers are thinking about sometimes. Sometimes they don't think about that. Sometimes, like, that's just not a priority to them. Sometimes they're just like, look, funny's funny, and I know what funny looks like. And you learn to work with both groups of people. Learn to, uh, you learn to kind of speak all of their languages, and it changes fundamentally how you build stories. I know that while I was on both Superstore and the Goldbergs, my understanding of what being a writer was changed 150%. I completely saw this job differently than I did when I started. And that was for the better because I learned what the job was, not what I wanted it to be. You challenge people with your writing. That's sort of what we all want to do, right? Like we all want to challenge people and we all want to make a difference. But we also have to remember that what we're really doing is we're We're helping people figure it out. It's hard out there. It's hard out there every single day. The reason that people run to Los Angeles so often is is that like where you're from was so scary that you ran to a place that has no resources for you and decided to try and make them laugh. That's a choice. That's That's a decision that was made. And I know that for me, I watch my parents' values get informed and my own values get informed by movies and television. I watched that happen. My mom, every night before she would go to bed, would watch Twister or Independence Day. That was like her movie. And she just, like that was the movie that she turned on when it was time to go to sleep. 
she'd fall asleep to the sounds of Washington DC being destroyed by aliens. <laughs> like, and, and actually I asked her about it. I was like, like why independence day? She was like, yeah, you know, it's not even that great of a movie. It's actually only okay. And I was like, I, I just, it's kind of a great movie. And she's like, yeah, no, I, I just kind of like seeing the city explode. And I was like, that's what you went to sleep with every night. That's crazy. <laughs> I was like, that's really bizarre. That that's that was your experience. On the plus side, she uh, she was prepared for what happened last year. So, oh my god, she was. Uh, <laughs> uh, are you referring to the bomb that was Independence Day? I can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was referring more to the election. Of, oh, that's true. <laughs> but, uh, that's true. Uh, well, you know, she was. The election was interesting, right? Because I remember I was in a room. I won't say which room. But um, it was the White House. It was it was the White. <laughs> it was the situation room. I was in the situation room, and everyone around. Actually, that's what kind of the writers' room is like a little bit. It's kind of the situation room because you because <laughs> you go in every day, and it really is like you you have one task, and that is to defuse the bomb that is the ten to thirteen episodes you've been assigned to complete in a season, or thirteen to twenty two, or whatever. You're ultimately basically it's your job to keep going. When they add more episodes to your season, that's like a plot twist. Like that's like a, that's like sweeps week and they added more <laughs> episodes and you're like, I have to figure this out because basically it's up to you to have if you're doing twenty two episodes of television, it's a, it's up to you to have twenty two different answers for a world problem by the end of the year. So that's your job while still not solving the central problem of whatever your show is. So you basically can solve all but like some of the problems in the course of a television show. So for it being a situation room, when the election, when Donald Trump announced his candidacy, his intention to run as president of the United States, you never saw a more tickled room than comedy writers rooms. (laughs) Everybody thought it was so funny. You know, Jimmy Fallon, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but Jimmy Fallon had Donald Trump on television making fun of himself in a bit, like the day after it happened. Everyone thought it was actually crazy. They thought it was impossible. And I remember kind of, I I know that like where I come from, you know, I come from Tucson, Arizona, which is a pretty conservative state. I moved for a reason. And that's nothing to bag on Tucson. Tucson's got a lot of great things in it, but when he announced his candidacy, I was like, oh, you know, this is actually a little scary. And you have all these people that are very, very educated, and they're just like, no, Gary, that's crazy. That'll never happen. It's fine. And you're like, you know, white-eyed child, basically. Like, they know. They know. You get, to, you get deep into it, and you realize that sometimes the people that you are looking up to can be wrong because they're doing it for the first time, too. Everybody, I think, that's sort of a uh, liberal American, uh, educated American, educated in the traditional Ivy League or uh, collegiate way, because that's not to say that people that voted for Trump are not educated. They're actually hyper-educated. They just came to different conclusions, I think, than the rest of us did. And we are continuing to negotiate that. And one of the things that's funny about comedy and one I think the real responsibilities of people that are doing comedy have to think about is that what you make fun of has an impact, and it is dangerous. It is dangerous to turn something into a joke if it's an actual threat. Because, you know, you're trying to teach people to not be that way by using comedy. you got to remember, what about somebody is funny? Donald Trump himself is hilarious. Donald Trump's policies are very scary. And it is separating that and knowing the difference between those things, I think that's something that we learned in a big, bad way, culturally, mm-hmm. in a broad, sort of far-reaching way. 
you know, you have the uh, John Oliver episodes where, like, he invites Donald Trump to step down. He's just like, just stop doing your candidacy. We're not going to think less of you. You have moments like that. And, I mean, it's it's sort of funny because you got to think, I, like, either he heard that and he was like, we'll see what you think later. Or... He was freaking out the entire time, and he's been freaking out the entire time, and he can't believe himself that he's the president of the United States. I think option B is more likely. Option B seems very likely, <laughs> while hiding behind option A, which, by the way, worst way to be a writer's assistant is to go in and operate in any way like Donald Trump. You shouldn't do that. Like, just any of his values, any of the things that he's kind of thinking about or on point with, just have the opposite values of Donald Trump, and I think he'll probably be okay. <laughs> So, uh, moving back to writing for a minute. Sure. Uh, so someone finds themselves in a similar kind of position as you were. You're a writer's assistant. You're working closely with, you know, a, a writer who you respect and all that kind of thing. And, but also at the same time, your goal is that you want to be that writer. You want to be working in a room with them and, and, and on that kind of level. So how do you kind of approach that where you're like, Hey, do you want to read my script or Hey, will you promote me to being a writer? Like, how do you deal with all of that kind of thing? You know? <laughs> Okay, I think I handled that as poorly as I could, <laughs> which I'm fine talking about. When I went ahead and started working for Justin, you know, I was really nervous, and I was really nervous when the time came to ask, and I was like, can I? And when is the time to ask? I mean, while we were on the deal, I probably asked like two months in. It's like, probably not the time to ask, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't, like, we we hung out together when all you're doing is making up a show, like mm -hmm. the conversations get weird. It's not like, you know, you say hi to someone, you're like, Hey, how's it going? How are you? Like, like you, you have like a lot of work to do, but then just like when you're writing your own pilots, how many days do you like go to sit down to write? And you're just like, I'm not going to do anything today. Like, you know, <laughs> like you're, you're, you're like, I could write right now or I could finish my book. Mm. I could write right now or I could watch six feet under because it's great and it's good research and I need to watch it. And all of a sudden you spend all of your time doing research instead of actually Wait, writing. that was me uh, last Sunday. What? <laughs> uh, that's, that's writers on deals. Like writers on deals need to also sit around and do a lot of like listening to the world and then they get to write a show. You know, that's that. I think that's the real difference is that, again, the real thing about writing, listen to what people are trying to figure out because that is what you're supposed to write about. People are telling you what they need from you. You just got to learn to listen. It was about two months in, and I had this pilot, and uh, it was called Afterlife Incorporated. It was about a temp agency in purgatory, because literally everyone has written a script about purgatory. Like, <laughs> Workplace comedies in heaven and hell, I think yeah. I read about four of them a day. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, they are uh, horrific, actually. And a lot of is that... Is the twist that it's hell all along? <laughs> <laughs> actually, no. The twist is... So the pilot... What, what I'll, I'll tell you what the pilot was about was it was about a girl that um, got to purgatory and encountered her ex-fiance uh, ex who disappeared on their wedding day. And she sees this as an opportunity now in purgatory to like rekindle that relationship. And we get to the midpoint of the episode... And what we basically find out is that the reason that he died on the way to the reason that he didn't show up to their uh, to their wedding was because he was riding he was riding his bike the opposite way from the church and was not ready to do it was so afraid to do it and couldn't commit to that relationship then and still couldn't commit to that relationship now and at that moment he disappears and that love interest was eliminated from the show 
in the pilot anyway and so uh, purgatory is a thematic metaphor for being stuck in between absolutely yeah. yeah that was the that was the whole feeling I love themes so much that I don't think it really worked. Uh, it's really crazy. It's it's like a, it was it was my first attempt at doing something sort of really out there, and I handed it to a writer from the office, which is the opposite of that. So his whole thing was like he had also seen many scripts about purgatory, and was like, okay, so here's some insights that I have about some of this area. Got notes from other people as well, and they sort of gave me feedback, and I just kind of like, and I kept workshopping it, but I was so obsessed with trying to get it right that I never really finished it. Really polished it. I just kind of moved on to the next script. And then it came time to staff. And I looked at all of the scripts. I didn't ask about staffing during the uh, pilot. I didn't ask about staffing during the pilot because I was so busy reading the scripts that I didn't Maybe I should have. I wanted to be considered, but I wanted to see the process all the way through. Then when it came to season two, I was like, should I submit a script? And he was like, totally. And I freaked out. I was like, there's no way that I could have a script that's good enough that's going to compete. So I went about writing a whole new script. And I wrote this whole other story and came to the conclusion that the script that I wanted to write, you know, we write about what we're experiencing. And I think I pretty transparently wrote about being an assistant. That's not something I'd recommend doing, you know, uh, to, to give to your boss. Yeah. And say, you want to hang out all the time, you know, cause that's what you're doing. You, you, you know, you're writing a thing that's basically like, here's all of my opinions of the last couple of years. Do you want to hang out all, all the time? And I think that the way that I handled that was probably not the best. I think that when you are turning in your script, it behooves whoever you are to not write don't write your script for staffing trying to communicate something to your boss that you don't think they're aware of because they're aware of it. They know. Everybody knows. Everybody knows what everybody wants. Like everybody wants to move up. Everybody wants more. And everybody sort of sees people that are in positions of authority. They understand that like you aren't just being an assistant to hang out. You're trying to get yours too. But the thing is, is that when you're trying to make a TV show or you're trying to make a movie, you need assets. You need people that are going to show up every day and they're going to do the job that you need them to do. And that means that they need to be listening. And writing a script like that and turning that in was a really aggressive move. And I'm not saying that's why I wasn't asked back, saying that that is remotely the reason. But if I had to think about something in hindsight, say that my values were sort of a little more self-focused and not as assuredly thinking about everybody else. And so I think it's important when you have the script and the material that you think is ready, bring it to the people that you can trust and be really clear about what you're looking for. If you want notes, get those notes. If you want to know if they think that it's ready to go, then then it's probably ready to go. But the truth is, is that like, these people aren't going to change your life. If you're asking for their feedback, that's fine. But if they want to help you, they're just going to say they're going to help you. You know, otherwise, like, you got to figure it out. You got to be doing the work. Because remember, they went through writing already. They didn't start out this way. Some of them did. Some of them started on in very good places with the right family. And that's awesome. Or they had the right connections and everything just worked out for them. A lot of the other ones, they worked their way up. And they cultivated a relationship. Because when somebody says they like your script, it's another way of saying, I'm on board with what you're saying. And I want to empower you to continue to communicate ideas that I think are valuable. And that's something that's really important for people to think about 
when they're writing anything. And so getting out there and making really great stuff. You know, there was that guy last year that wrote that really funny Seinfeld 9-11. <laughs> We're going to be having him on the podcast soon. Yeah. Oh my God, he's so funny. He's very funny, dude. I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, but uh, I have a lot of respect for what he did there. And what he really did was he made something awesome and he put it out into the world and that enabled somebody that he was friends with, somebody that liked him, who had a microphone, to go, check this out. And just doing that, that goes a really long way. He did the work. And he had something that he thought he could stand on his own two feet. And his friends agreed with him. And we don't know what kind of workshopping went on behind the scenes. We don't know what their relationship was like. We don't know what that is. But we do know that it got sent out into the world. And people started to talk about it. It had a thing that people could talk about. Saying that you have a 9-11 episode of Seinfeld is genius. Like, that is actual, inspired, very, very carefully thought out. And by genius, I don't mean impossible like magic. I mean, that person is very good at their job. That person is very good at coming up with something very funny. And they know and they're listening to the conversation. That's a great listener. I don't know. Maybe he'll talk too much. He probably won't. But but <laughs> if I have to imagine, he's, he's good at listening and he's good at paying attention to what people are saying. And if he's paying attention to what people are saying, that only carries him forward. As he continues to have more and more success, which he will, hopefully he remembers that. Because that ability to listen is... I think that's everything. I think that's that's probably true about being a writer. It's probably true about all the jobs, really. Like, whatever you want to be, just remember, pay attention. What do you feel is kind of next for you from here? You mentioned right now you're assisting uh, Adam Wingard on Death Note, but where do you see your kind of future trajectory heading? Working with, uh, working with Adam is fantastic. It really is. And getting to actually know the movie side of things, it's, it's such a different world. When you're working in movies versus television, like... I remember when I started, I had this idea that I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do television during the season, and then I'll just make little independent movies on the side. And they're just, like, not the same thing. You know, they're very different worlds. And they become different worlds because you learn what the tools that are required to make movies are. And it's always fantastic. You know, I got my start doing indie movies and getting to see this, and Adam's fantastic, and working with him has been really rewarding. You know, we just have a really great rapport, I think. But um, the other side of that is, is, you know, I'm writing. And I've been writing a few different projects with a few different people, and I've been getting them out there and sort of like into a platform and trying to move them all ahead. And that's, that's sort of what I'm continuing to do, is just sort of focusing in pretty intently on just getting the scripts out and getting them into people's hands and getting people to think about them. And then writing in general. If you're a writer, a writer is someone that pays their bills writing. So if that's what you want to be doing, all you got to do is figure out how to pay your bills with it. And then it's all fine. Then you did it. And you get all of the glory that comes with being a writer. <laughs> so I think that like my big focus is to pivot where my income comes from writing. And if that happens to come working with the people that I'm working with right now on Death Note, that'd be amazing. That'd be uh, fantastic. That'd be a great opportunity. If it, if it doesn't, then those are relationships that I have as I continue to move forward and really try and work with other people on making projects that we both kind of believe in. It's really rare to find people that you vibe with speak your language. And that, to me, is like a really big priority, which is work with people who are sort of out to speak the same language. They're out to make stuff that helps people and make really challenging and sort of interesting and cool, aggressive content. And yeah, that's, I, I think, I think that's sort of what it is. So to wrap that all up into a nutshell, 
keep working with uh, the people that I'm working with and uh, seeing where those relationships go, but also writing, writing, writing. All right, before we finish things off, do you have any resources or recommendations for writers or even assistants? Do nothing that I've said here today. Just do none of those <laughs> things. Um, no. Uh, yeah, it's like it all kind of depends. If you're a story nut and that's a thing that's a real priority to you, cracking open some Joseph Campbell, getting your hands on Michael Arndt's PDF about great endings or his talk in general. is a, It's a fantastic talk. It, I think it, someone animated it now as well. It's oh, like a really cool that's, thing. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. It's, I mean, it really, it really is very smart. And it was sort of like a big gateway drug for me. Additionally, if you were into comedy, I believe it's called Why Are You Laughing by Dan O'Shannon. It's really great. And it's a really sort of like mechanical under the hood look at jokes and sort of really tackling those. I think that's really important for people to be to be reading. I can only tell you what I read. And what I spend a lot of time reading is just, I found myself getting very preoccupied in the narratives that other species or that people that have strengths that I don't, what are the narratives that they're telling? I had this really weird experience last year reading this book, The Secret Life of Trees. It's about how trees talk to each other, about how trees are communicating all the time. Like when deer come by and feed on them, they change the taste of their leaves because they don't want anybody eating them. Tree communities have a real hierarchy. And if a tree tries to shoot above the others without leaving space for the ones that are at the top that the resources will be pulled from that tree. And incredible. Yeah, it's also true. It's there's so many interesting things out there outside of movies and television and the things that people are thinking about. And one of the best resources that I have, one that keeps me sane and keeps me kind of on the ball in terms of, writing stuff that I think is interesting and exciting is getting out there and getting perspectives that I wouldn't have normally. Right now I'm sort of reading, I'm alternating between reading this book called Wrapped, which is about sort of focus and uh, the difference in the varying success that people have based on the amount of focus that they have. And it, and it sort of looks at the successes and the pathologies of ADHD and how it sort of functions within the body and uh, how we can sort of help people be more successful by encouraging a little bit more focus, which really means mindfulness and presence. With this uh, book by Alain de Baton, which is his essays on love. And I'm kind of going through that with my girlfriend right now. And it's, uh, it's yeah, you know, it's, uh, well, really, but like I got it for her. I'm like I, I don't know what it's I, I did because I was like this is really sweet like we can learn about like how this person thinks love works and she's like don't you know how love works what's wrong with you <laughs> is, is it creative fiction or is it what kind of it's uh, a writing? it's a, a philosophical kind of essays it's I mean it's really douchey pretentious stuff <laughs> but uh, actually no Alain de Vuitton is fantastic he, uh, he has this website called the school of life oh I've t- actually totally read that book that you're talking about have I'm pretty you? sure I picked it up one time after like being heartbroken and and something ended and tried to find solace in it gotcha yeah no wait uh, like honestly i'm you know i'm I'm pretty well about the girlfriend so you know we like really it's just like an exploration i think it's always good to open up the door and 
learn a little bit from people that have come before you. Though he wrote that book when he was like 23, so we can't take a yeah. single thing he uh, had to what say. What does he know about that? What does he know about love at all? He was 23 years old. Uh, prob- I mean, probably a the lot. The philosophy of Tinder. I mean, like- right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we have now, right? Like, yeah. I think, I think that it's basically you, what uh, Aziz Ansari wrote in uh, Modern yeah. Romance. Yeah, right? Right? That is, that's exactly what he wrote. Well, thanks to all of our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 43. If you want to give us some reviews, which we would definitely love, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. All of those reviews are going to help us get more new listeners, and we can throw a big party when we have enough of them. Am I invited to the party? Yes. If you want to party with me... Leave no, that's not a good that's leave reviews that's not a great that's not a great way to handle that i'm sorry i run the end of your show as you were that's fine and once again we'd like to thank our sponsor the tracking boards launchpad writing competitions paper team listeners can actually save 15 dollars off their next purchase just use the code paper team which is all capitals and all one word at the checkout to receive your discount and you can learn more about all the launchpads current and upcoming writing competitions by visiting tblaunchpad.com and as always i'm on twitter at tv calling I'm at underscore NJ Watson. What are you, Gary? I am at Gary Sunt, spelled S-U-N-D-T. Very succinct. And if you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions, ideas for future episodes, you can send them at ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we will be talking about World Building 101. How do you craft a show and the world that goes with it? Any thoughts, Gary, on the on the subject? Oh, on the subject of world building? Yes. Um, make sure that it just looks just a little bit like the world that you live in. Just like if, if you're going to go, if you're going to go to space, make it a metaphor for something on earth, you know, no like, silicon based life forms. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> it's kind of like people are like, Oh, what's the mystery behind Star Wars? I'm like, Star Wars is about a kid. That's a farmer that gets the chance to go save the world. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's, it's out there and but it's People in space, are green in the background. So it's, it's fine. It's so different. No, it's it's a, but it's okay. It's okay. Because metaphors are good. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, my, <laughs> uh, my big thing about world building is like, just make it based on something in real life. Like mm-hmm. just make sure your world's saying something, you know, because I think a lot of people I think that's a misstep that a lot of people take. Then again, make it based on nothing. There's no reasons at all. (laughs) On that nihilistic note, uh, we will see you next time. See y'all.